Audio conversation with Whitley Strieber, recorded Friday, January 20th, 2012. This interview was kind of a big deal for me. I have followed Whitley's work since 1992. Uh, that was the summer. I sat in the shade uh, alongside the little mobile home that I was living in in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and read Communion for the first time. Uh, it had kind of an f- odd impact on me. This was long before I looked into my own set of experiences at all. Uh, I was fascinated by the story, and it, it kind of set me off along with one other book um, on a, uh, oh, a crazy odyssey that brings me right to where we are now. So uh, I, uh, this guy has had a big impact on my life, and what we talk about is his latest book, which is a follow-up to that book that I read in that summer 20 years ago, and the new book is called Solving the Communion Enigma, What is to Come? Uh, I if anyone has made it to this audio interview series, I don't think I need to explain who Whitley Strieber is. What I will do, though, is come in at the end and um, just give some summation as far as how I feel some of the details of the interview went. Uh, it went great. Uh, the, the guy's a joy to talk to. He's a skilled writer and a very skilled speaker. It's about 45 minutes, the interview, and, and then I will add some stuff at the end, including an excerpt from an interview that he did shortly after the publication of the original Communion with a radio host named Don Swaim. I'm going to tack on a little bit because it's interesting uh, now a quarter of a century later. It would be an understatement to say that I enjoyed this interview, and I hope you do too. Please enjoy. Hello. Hi, Mike. Good morning. How are you? Fine, thank you. And you? Very well, very well. Good. Oh, you sound great. You sound just great. Yeah, I've got a, a beautiful mic here. Oh, yes. Oh, wow. You sound much better. I think you sound... I have a $19 uh, uh, headset, and I've been experimenting with other microphones and things like that, and i testing the sound quality. And Well, I, I have to say I'm amazed because you sound fabulous I know, on this end. I know. It's, it's, I've tried. I've actually got a $90 microphone here that, uh, that doesn't sound as good as this little thing, so I'm not going to jinx it. So, Hey, um... The way I run these is I record them, and then at the end I edit them. So if you uh, sneeze or have to get a drink of water or anything like that, that it, I can just snip that right yeah. out. And then I uh, do a little intro that I record afterwards at the beginning and a little summation at the end. Uh, and I, that's and then eventually I will post it with that all in place. So. Okay, good. Good. And um, I just finished the book, so I feel pretty intimate with it. And one of the things I will probably touch on and mention during the, the interview is uh, my own set of experiences, which have been challenging for me, and I will probably address that a little bit in the in the interview because that um, sure. the whole reason I'm doing this this website and this blog is based on my own personal experiences and such. So um, yeah, you got activated. I don't know what. It's very strange. It's very mysterious because it's. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't have any good answer or any good set of experience that I can trust in a way to to give me any kind of confirmation. So it it, it does feel nebulous. What I will do then is uh, I begin the interview just by um I I will basically say you know thanks for saying yes to this interview and then we'll we'll go ahead and roll. Okay. Um. Good. Let me just move over to the desk here. Three, two, one. 
Whitley, I just want to say I am perfectly honored and so grateful that you said yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. And I just finished the book. The book is Solving the Communion Enigma. And um, here, let me just start out by saying this. Over the last bunch of years, I've been I've been playing the role of researcher and focusing almost entirely on what would be the direct contact experience. And I've found that as I talk to people, I pay very close attention to their individual stories and their experiences. Um, now, as I get deeper and deeper into this, I recognize that absolutely everyone has a different opinion of what it all might mean. And because of that, I, I don't actually pay that much attention to people's opinions and conclusions. Uh, but I will say I do uh, have one exception to that. I do pay very close attention to your opinions and ideas. And I do that um, not so much if I know that you're correct or not, but I just find that there's something so thoughtful and personal in your approach. And, and it has helped me enormously as I attempt to proceed forward in all of this. Well, the experience is extremely personal as you know, and it, there has to be a commitment on the personal level of anybody who is doing this and engaged with this. And it's hard because it means that, you know, you're, I'm out there on the Internet in 53 different ways. I am answering maybe 30 or 40 emails a day every day of my life. And I'm engaging with people because... I don't see any other way of dealing with this right now. There are no institutionalized methods of dealing with it that have any credibility at all, in my opinion. And, and I will say just from my own direct experience, the only thing that I have found beneficial is seeking out people who have had this similar set of experiences and then just, just you know, plain old talking with them. And, and that even that is full of fraught with problems because – when we tried to start communion groups, they were immediately invaded by people with agendas, by religious fanatics, by people from the UFO community, in some cases by people who seemed to have some kind of official locomotion behind them. And it was an absolute, uh, it was an absolute disaster because the one thing is that the average close encounter witness is a nice, decent person who has had a very strange thing happen to them, the nature of which they cannot explain. And so all of these people were pouring into these groups with explanations. Not the right approach. Yes, and what, what I found is that just individually I've, I've met some wonderful folks that I have found you know, strong commonalities with. And for those folks, I, I am grateful that they exist and that I've had the chance to meet them. Well, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, less, less in, it, so in an organized uh, group setting. I've actually been to some group setting things, and those, those do get a little, uh, it feels like I'm in the middle of a, you know, a, a heated uh, religious fundamentalist meeting or something. It, that is the problem. And the people who have the strongest opinions will speak out, speak the loudest. And the problem there is, of course, we actually don't know the answers. So people who will come into these groups, some of them with, uh, even with ideas about exactly where they come from, what planets they're from, their names, the, you know, some of them are greys and they're bad and reptilians and they're even worse and 
big, tall, wonderful blondes, and they're real sweet. Come on. I mean, that's folklore. It doesn't have anything to do with reality. What reality is about in this case is strange, inexplicable experiences and observations that have not yet been focused on enough by the scientific institutions we do possess for us to understand them because the assumption is that they are already understood and therefore only worthy to be dismissed. Yeah, I agree. In this book that we're talking about, as well as in the original communion from 25 years ago, uh, you made a statement. In a way, I, I, it, it, it forces me to scratch my head a little bit. I really have to kind of um, uh, attempt to focus on it. And, and when I do, I find there's something genuinely insightful to this statement. And um, here's what you have written about the overall phenomenon. I just would love a comment on this. Um, you say, this might be what the force of evolution looks like when it is applied to a conscious mind. That's the central theme of the book and the central theme of my life. Yes, please expand on that because that, that is something right. that I have to, um, you know, that I, yeah. I can hold in my mind for just a second and then it almost slips away. It's, it's such a deep thought. <laughs> well, evolution, let me give you an example, a concrete example uh, is the best way to approach this, I think. And this comes out of the work of Ann Streber, who is an indefatigable researcher and she's the one who made the discoveries that led to this conclusion, or, or led to, I, had, I came to that conclusion in communion. It was speculation. Now it's not speculation. It is, in fact, I think, part of what's happening. Here's how it works. If you look at crop formations, UFO sightings, close encounters of the third kind, even animal mutilations, uh, the appearance of the dead along with apparent aliens, which is a commonplace of the experience. You just don't hear about it in the UFO literature because they don't like to talk about that. It's too outside of the idea of uh, scientists from another planet coming, coming here to study us, which is not what's happening, I don't think. In any case, you look at all of these things together as a single phenomenon, and what you see is basically an incredible, vividly intense question that we can neither tolerate nor answer. And as soon as we answer the question, we lose the, we lose the energy of the experience and we come to a stopping place. Questions like this, and this is what Anne discovered, it, scientifically change the brain they literally make the left brain more efficient the logical brain more efficient as the mind strives to understand and strives to make sense it actually creates more synaptic connections in the logic centers of the brain this is evolutionary in nature because it also means that some of that change will be uh, injected into the DNA of the individual and go down the generations. You do that enough, you change, you increase the intelligence of a species just a little, and that species is changed profoundly. That's evolution from within.
And that is certainly part of what is happening to us and why you can't ever get to the bottom of anything in this whole field. That's, that's, oh God, that's so good. That's one, that is, a, that summation of the book is, was very helpful because um, the book, you know, covers a lot. I mean, from crop circles to the dead, to the UFO lore, to what pilots have seen in the sky, and then to, to sort of sum it up like that, that was, that's very helpful. Thank you. And I think hopefully that will, I don't know, inspire folks to, you know, look at the book as something a little more in depth than just a, I, I, I mean, there's something sort of simplistic about most UFO books. Well, that's right, because of the fact that they basically are written from the standpoint of, I know what this is. This is aliens from another planet who are here doing something to us. They're studying us. They're stealing from us. They are changing us in some way. And In other words, we are passive participants. The actual truth is, whatever this is, is forcing us, forcing us to do what we don't want to do to make us active participants. Human beings are passive. We sit and wait for things to change. But this forces, it compels the brain to be active. It means that, that, that we can't simply sit back passively. We end up entertaining these questions whether we not want to or not because they're so provocative. Even people who dismiss the whole thing as nonsense still end up entertaining the questions. The result of this is that whoever's behind it couldn't care less about what we know or don't know. All they're interested in is making sure that we are tormented by the question. <laughs> and that is, that's the, that is probably their primary mission. There are a lot of secondary missions. Obviously, human sexual material has been gathered. It's been gathered from me. Uh, there's a, a, a dark subtext that I have explored and am exploring in the book, The Nye Incidents, the graphic novel, The Nye Incidents, of violent con contact between humans and, and whatever this is. There's all kinds of stuff. There's all kinds of ways of going. But every single road you go down ends in the same place. A question that you cannot bear and cannot answer. Um, you use the word compel in that uh, in that answer you just gave me there, and that is something that I have uh, in my own writing. I feel like that's the one vocabulary word that I use over and over and over again, and it is a mystery to me. I feel what I'm doing right now, this podcast series, the the written work I've put online, is something that I am I just feel I am compelled to do, and I don't quite understand why. Well, you know, you're like all of us. I I didn't realize when I first started this in 1980, I remember exactly when I was walking down the street in Manhattan in March of 1986, and I thought to myself, you know, this weird thing would really be an interesting book. This is quite an adventure I'm on. And this was after I had realized finally that there was something to it other than being attacked, you know, it wasn't a crime. There was, or it was, in my opinion, a crime. But uh, the the there was something much more strange to this than I had initially thought. And uh, I thought to myself, boy, there's a book in this. I could write it. This is fascinating. And so I wrote the book, and my publisher agreed that it was absolutely fascinating. And we both sort of laughed about, you know, how it would be taken and. 
they published a, a pretty big printing. Uh, it was not. It was probably as big as my previous book, War Day. And everyone expected it would go on the bestseller list because in those days I was I was consistently best a bestseller. Communion in the end ended that, but um, it did. But what the explosion was un completely unexpected. Both the explosion of people who had had similar experiences and the equally intense explosion from the government and its people and the people and, and the scientific community and intellectual communities that this had to all be nonsense. Uh, and the laughter in the media, it was just, it was astonishing. I, I really turned, you talk about a can of worms. My word, my life became a can of worms I couldn't get out of. So uh, this, is a, this is a deep social issue. It is, however, also one that has now been turned away from. Uh, the White House, a uh, couple of months ago, said it has no evidence at all of the presence of any other intelligent life on Earth except us. It dismissed the whole thing completely and said the government has absolutely no evidence. A blanket, frank, and provable lie. But... Millions, and this they knew this would work. Millions of people saw that lie, and it enforced passivity. But not because the people believe it. They don't believe it. The most people who've been polled about it think it's a bald-faced lie, 78% of them or something. But it also communicated to them that the government will not budge an inch and made them feel helpless. Helpless. Yeah, yeah it felt like... Um uh, in a way, it felt like uh, you know somebody from the Soviet Politburo basically saying that you know life in the salt mines is is wonderful. Um, you know that yes. that's the way I interpreted that thing. It just was like I think everyone recognized that the, the level of cynicism in among you know the average workaday Joe is is off the charts at this point, specifically because of you know comments like that from the government. Hey, here, Liz, I want to ask you about something that um, you addressed in the book. I've also followed you on your Unknown Country website for years now, so I've heard you talk about these experiences before, and, it, and I've always had this question, and I'm going to ask it now. Um, and, I, and I ask this because I have talked to a lot of people, and people I trust, with, with accounts that are very similar to the experiences um, you write about in, in chapters three and four of your new book. And you tell a frightening story. You tell of experiences in your youth that paint a picture of some sort of horrific government-sponsored trauma-based mind control. And uh, it, it's some sort of program with, with an agenda. And then when we jump ahead in your life as an adult, you later become aware of the direct visitor experience. And with what you've written and shared, as well as people that I've talked to, I'm, I'm left to conclude that these two experiences are somehow intertwined. Um, and now here's the, here's what the question, here's where I'm stumped. Did the trauma in your youth somehow open you up to the visitors or were you somehow sought out as a boy by this shadowy government group precisely <laughs> because you already had an existing relationship with the visitors and, and possibly through some sort of family lineage? 
Uh, can you imagine having a question like that in your life? <laughs> uh, and the, the sad thing is, uh, is I have asked this question to um, uh, a lot of people. So, well, it's a, it's a good question, and the answer is I don't have the answer. Uh, I I certainly do know one thing. Uh, I and a lot of other people are much more efficient at interaction, interacting with this phenomenon and noticing it because our expectations were shattered in early childhood. Now, my assumption is that whatever's out there knows very well, that, that knew very well that that would be true. And however it was done, found the people it wanted to use early on and made sure these disruptions came into their childhood lives. In my case, it may have been something that happened at that air, air base, at Randolph Air Force Base, or it may have been something else. I don't know. Because as I say in the book, you know, looking back to the memories of a five, six, and seven-year-old, you simply can't be sure what they mean. All I do know is I was very, very upset and very, very distressed and I know that because I was uh, so I was so stressed out that my immune system collapsed when I was seven and that level of stress certainly didn't come from the, the very staid family and very regular family life I was living at the time it came from somewhere outside I mean, even there, there was plenty of dysfunctionality in my family. There is in every family. But if it, it wasn't to the extent that it would literally cause somebody to start to die, and, and that's what happened to me. Uh, and not only that, why wasn't I treated by my doctor? Why did I have to be treated at a military hospital? And there exists proof that this happened or proof that something happened because my mother all of those years kept my report card from just that one report card from my second grade year that shows the, the uh, uh, months of absence from second grade. And there had to be a reason that she kept that one card. I never knew, I never got an answer from her, though, or from my father about it. And you write about the, the, that time of illness in um, the secret school, if I'm not mistaken. Well, now that was another time. That was in the summer of my ninth year. And a, a milder version of the same thing happened. Only because it happened in the summer, I was not amused. I had been delighted, frankly, by what happened in, in the fall of uh, my seventh year because here I was a little boy and suddenly I didn't have to go to school. Great. I didn't feel too good, but I didn't have to go to school. And the gamma globulin shots, as I recall, were huge, and that wasn't pleasant. But I could get up and hang out in the yard and have a nice time every day. I didn't have to. I was not going to school, and it was wonderful. I loved it. Fast forward to the age of nine, and it's summer, and I have this happen again, and they make me stay in my room. That did not work well. It certainly didn't sit well with me. But what happened was I got a terrific fever. Uh, they tested me again and my immune system was disrupted again they didn't get the gamma globulin shots because it came back again that was that one only lasted a couple of weeks and it's it's never happened since but there have been a couple of times 
when doctors have noticed uh, that my blood work was very strange. Now, for example, uh, Dr. John Lerma, who uh, tried to take the implant out of my left ear uh, in, in the early 90s, noticed that my blood work was similar in pattern to the blood work of someone who had spent time in weightlessness. And, of course, that I, had, I said to him, Dr. Lerma, I have no recollection whatsoever of being weightless, either recently or ever. And he said, well, I, he said, I don't know what to make of it. And, uh, but he tested it again later, and it was fine. It, and uh, the, there was another test done by a Dr. Um, Maximilian Fabricant about 20 years before that, back in the 70s, where he commented that my blood had taken on a strange, uh, th there was something very strange about it. But he retested it again in a few weeks, and it was back to normal. So that's been with me a lot of my life, and what it is, I don't know. Oh, this is fascinating. Here, I want to ask a question, and this is a personal question, and I and I asking it for myself as well as as well as other people that I've talked to who I've I've spoken about this uh, before. I'm, over the decades, I've followed your work, and and I get the impression that some of the close encounter experiences take place in some sort of altered state of consciousness somehow. Uh, things are altered in some way. And I've, I've had an experience, as far as I know, only three times. I have a clear memory of sitting up in bed at night, looking out the window, and seeing five spindly gray aliens in the yard. And they were quite close to the window. Uh, and they were backlit by a bright light. And this happened in 1993. Now, I have trouble fully trusting this memory because what I was feeling at the moment was somehow altered or distorted and and it's very difficult to try to describe what that what that might mean but it felt as if reality itself was somehow distorted or warped and and because this feeling is so weird it's been extremely challenging because i simply can't allow myself to fully trust this memory i feel a sort of shaky need to reject to reject it outright does is what i'm trying to articulate does this make sense to you yeah, I, I see where you're going. Yeah, absolutely. I see very much where you're going. And uh, uh, that inability to articulate is, is just characteristic of uh, uh, absolutely characteristic of, the, of this experience. That's why the word enigma is used in the title of the book. It is an enigma. And, it, and, 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 and when you get into it and it actually enters your life, it becomes even more enigmatic. And you, you are immediately challenged at a very deep level. Uh, the uh, uh, challenge is to keep the question open. Yes, and, and I will. I have to praise you because you uh, you are a very skilled writer, and um, you are very effective at uh, trying to articulate what might be um, beyond just mere words. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, the power of this book. I think is is trying to capture something so mysterious, you know, just in written words. So I'm very grateful for that. Hey, um, we're just at about a half hour here. How are you holding up? You could you have a few more minutes? Yeah, I could do about another fifteen minutes or so, but but then we're going to have to leave because I have a 
another another appointment, and Great. I'm in a easy. I, yeah, but yeah, okay, let's do it. Okay, hold it here. This is again. Then I got ahead of myself. I got. Let me just ask another question here. Let me look at my notes. Um. Okay, so uh, one more question. So as I look into the subject, whether it's called visitor contact or alien abduction, I am absolutely thunderstruck by how common it all seems to be. You know, I have a very modest website uh, where I talk about these things, and I get so many emails and so many, so much correspondence from people that claim this direct experience. I don't, you know, I don't know how many people in the world are having this experience, but all I can say is that it certainly seems to be a lot and you obviously are aware of this too, um, the implications of this are so bizarre that so many people claim this direct contact experience. And I, I personally don't quite know what to make of it. And I'm just, I'm just, if you could comment on that. Well, I'm not quite sure I understand the question. Okay, I just, what, you know, the implica- what could the implications be that there are so many people having this experience that it leaves me um, at a loss, uh, you know, like... Uh, Attempting to speculate on what that might mean just is so challenging to me that there are so many people around the world that are claiming this direct experience. Um, well, I think it's very clear what it means. I think that the direct experience dramatically speeds up brain change. For example, I think that my wife and I are a lot more logically coherent than we were when this started back in the 80s. There's no comparison. Our minds are much better. And I think that's probably true of everybody who has the experience and really wrestles with it. The ones who, who go into, off into belief states about it basically waste its value. Uh, in other words, if, you know, as soon as they decide it's the Pleiadians or the Greys or this or that, they've thrown away the tool that they've been given. Uh, that tool being the tool of keeping the question open and developing the question and making it and deepening it and, and making it more and more focused. That's the tool. Um, facing the fact that the, that the easy answers are not, are not adequate to explain it. Um, it, it so this, this is changing us. It's changing us dramatically. And it's very aggressive in that it leaves you with, you know, it left me. I mean, you talk about a question I couldn't stand, I couldn't tolerate, but also couldn't honestly and accurately answer. Initially, I was raped. I was physically raped. And, you know, that put a f- hell of a fire under me. I wanted to know what had happened, especially after it became clear it was not a conventional crime. And Anyone who has had an experience like that in their life and survives emotionally is going to be revised intellectually by their struggle to answer that question. That's where we are. That's what's being done to us. This penetration into the human species is having that, whether it's an intended effect or a side effect, I, I don't know, but it is that is happening. Uh, the other thing that's happening that has to be happening is the removal of sexual material from the human species is taking place. There, that is no question whatsoever about that. It is taking place. It is not being explained in any way, and whatever is being done with it, I don't know. It could be that we all all, all got kids on another planet somewhere. Who, who knows? 
Um, the subtitle of the book is What is to Come? And um, yes. you address this in the book, and this is where this is a slippery slope to try to to try to uh, you know guess what might be coming down in the future and what do you sense that might be what is to come well i think if we look at the situation like right now as we speak something new has come into the experience that is that there are sounds being heard all over the world that seems somehow connected with it. It may turn out that we find another origin for these sounds. But Anne and I heard one of these sounds a few nights ago, and I've determined we're getting ready to put a big story up about it on Unknown Country, and I've determined that there is something real about this. There are also a massive number of hoaxes starting about a month ago there, there, people started pouring hoaxes onto the web because it's so easy to take a camera out, jiggle it around a little bit, and then dub it with with the sound from some other video. And you know they're running around doing that now, but uh, trying to create the impression that it's the last Trump of creation or something, the end of the world's coming, whatever they're trying to do. But in any case, this is a new level of this. And if you look back in, in, in my book, it outlines in the 30s, before the Kenneth Arnold incident or any of these incidents, there began to be a, a kind of probing process of attempting to find out exactly how we would react. And it, uh, then it, it, this culminated in 1952 when not only did the the, the bellwether sightings of uh, occur in over the Chesapeake Bay where two pilots and also Dr. Paul Hill, the author of Unconventional Flying Objects uh, and, and, a, and an esteemed NASA scientist all saw the same UFO and it was also seen by ground observers, professional ground observers. There was no question at all, that this was a genuine sighting. And it's such a good sighting, in fact, that it even survived Blue Book and is noted as one of the unexplained sightings in Blue Book. In any case, uh, at the same time, in the same time frame, there were, uh, there was the UFO wave in July of that same summer over Washington. And in connection with that UFO wave, there were a whole series of bizarre close encounters all across the, uh, 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 primarily in the area of the Appalachians and, and over toward Washington. Then that stopped. Whatever happened, we, we did not react in the right way or we did react in the right way. And the next phase was very quietly. At first, it was just a few people coming forward with bizarre tales of Venusians, et cetera, and so forth, the early contactees, but very slowly, a process of actual physical engagement with the human species began and continues to this day. Now we have a situation where, in, on our website, we get three or four close encounter emails a day from people who have just had something happen to them. Uh, the internet is 
filled with UFO video, some of which is real. About a third of it is absolutely unexplainable. And probably 50% of it is not hoaxed. It's simply that uh, 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 some more of those can, can be, could be explained if anyone had the time to go into them. They're birds, mostly, is what people see. Uh, but, um, and then about 50% of them are hoaxes of various kinds. We have, so therefore, the close encounter experience has come very much closer the UFO experience has come very much closer. The crop formations has, have been institutionalized as a mystery in our world. This is all new. And now these sounds, maybe the sounds will be like the drones of the summer of 2007, an extraordinary mystery that just goes away after a while. But it does feel as if something is drawing slowly by inches and millimeters closer and closer to us and will it eventually culminate in a sudden change or will this slow enclosure of mankind in this mystery just continue at this pace for many years to come i don't know but certainly it is progressing it is definitely progressing over time and I sense that in my gut, uh, you know, beyond just the, the intellectual way you can look at it and sort of attempt to categorize, you know, what's been happening. I sense that so strongly in my gut. You know, it's it's not a logical thing. It is completely my intuitive side that sees this uh, this evolution taking place in the phenomenon itself. Well, exactly. It is taking place. The, the phenomenon is evolving. It is it is evolving. There's something somewhere, somebody something thinking about this and doing it in other words it's not accidental there's a there's a structured process of coming closer and what's interesting to me about this is that what is coming closer is as it, the closer it gets the more different from us it seems it is profoundly different from us and i find that not Entirely unexpected, actually. Uh, even Carl Sagan, who was such a ruthless debunker, said that that uh, contact with an alien species would be the strangest thing we could possibly imagine. And I have a feeling he was right about that, uh, because this is about the strangest thing you could possibly imagine. And it, it, it in, in the deeper you get into it, the stranger it is. And to the extent that having observed them and observed this experience so closely for so many years, I wonder very much if they have the same reference to physics, to the physics of the universe that we do. I wonder if they do not address their, their being does not somehow address the laws of the universe in a different way. And that they, that they experience the world literally in a different way from us that that in their world two and two are not necessarily four two and two might be 16 and we don't see it that way and it could be that part of the fear has to do with the annihilating conflict of mind that would come from this and this is why i wrote the short story the open doors some years ago which is available on unknown country 
in the, the subscriber area. And this is a story about uh, Dr. John von Neumann, who was one of the early investigators of this. No matter what they say officially, it's true. He was. Uh, and he was, when he died of liver cancer, he was absolutely terrified of something as he died. And the open door speculates on what that terror may be. And it may be something along these lines. That if this is an incursion from another dimension, another level of reality, it may be that the physics of their universe are different from ours, but that they can impose their physics on our universe if they can get through. And in order to get through, we have to believe them in them as implicitly as we believe in the existence of a table or a chair or another person. And looked at from that point, everything they're doing becomes kind of a military operation from another reality, which is trying to convince us of its existence so that it can include us in itself. And that would explain the total blanket denial of government because somewhere in there, there must be a tripwire on one side of which everything is in question. On the other side of which, so many people believe this that it in effect becomes part of our reality. And if that's true, then very suddenly the visitors would be walking down the streets. They would be everywhere. And who knows what would happen to the way we view reality. But I do think that the fear of panic in the streets is probably very real. I think that from what I've experienced of being close to them, it's real hard. And I mean, you just, everything goes with the one time when I was, I spent probably not even 15 or 20 minutes with one of these beings in a more or less, uh, non dreamlike context. And in the morning when I, the radio turned on to wake us up, it sounded like a foreign language to me. I couldn't even understand English anymore. I had gone so far from my reality in such a short time. It was like coming back from another universe, which, in fact, probably is what I had just done. Um, uh, Amplify that by, by an entire species of billions of people, and you can see that there would be some confusion. Um, earlier in this conversation, I spoke about an experience I had, which in 1993, where I, where I um, uh, saw those beings out the window, and at the same time, I was feeling somehow that reality was altered or distorted. Um, that sensation lasted perhaps 20 seconds, um, and it has changed the direction of my life. What if it was always that way? Not twenty seconds. I, I, I agree. It would it would thrust us into uh, a conundrum that that would know no bounds. You know, I think that I yes, yeah. Hey, um, this has been great. I, I just want to thank you. And I, before I let you go, I just want to I just want to say one thing. As I was preparing this interview, you know, one of the things I did is I searched out a nineteen eighty seven interview that you did with a fellow named Don Swaim. And you did it. Um, I remember Don. Sure. Yeah, yeah, and it was—it's a great interview. And with the thing that impressed me so much about it, you were talking about the original book Communion, and you were so thoughtful in the way you tried to articulate the strangeness. Um, it's—it's it's a beautiful interview, partially just because Don, 
um, I, I really don't know that much about him, but he was, he didn't believe you. He said outright that he didn't, but he conducted what I think was an excellent interview. And he, as the interviewer, was uh, capable of being very good about, you know, addressing this and keeping the question open. And now, 25 years later, I'm continually impressed that you are just as thoughtful and you have the same questioning voice. And um, I just want to let you know that 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 voice and your work and your dedication has meant a lot to me personally as I proceed down this very strange path. Well, a lot of people would love it if people like you and I shut up. <laughs> I'm never going to shut up. Simple as that. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. You should see. That's that's. It, uh, I think when people see me at a party, they kind of turn the other way and like, oh no, don't get him. Don't let's talk about anything except you know except what he wants to talk about. So. Um, yeah. I will never shut up. None of us should ever shut up. That is uh, good, though challenging advice for me. So. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Hey, um, thanks so much. Hey, I will be at the uh, UFO conference that will be taking place down in uh, Arizona in early February, the Open Minds Conference. Oh, good. Well, we'll see each other then. I'll probably be mobbed, but uh, that's okay. It's a little bit of a circus scene there. Well, it's not a little bit. It's quite the circus scene there. But, um, you know, there's uh, some of the folks that attend those conferences are quite genuine. And, and I, I get a lot from just interacting with the, uh, you know, the, the folks that yeah, are there I, for I the never, reasons I, they're there for. I never went to the ones that were in Laughlin. I went to one, but the, the conditions in those casinos were so unpleasant that I just couldn't go back. Yeah, I, it is. It is ghastly. very... Yeah, it is a very. It w this is much more delightful. Um, the the venue that they have the there is a casino associated with the uh, the complex. So you sort of have to walk outside and walk down a you know a little garden, and then you you know turn a corner, and then there's an entirely separate building. So um, you know that That's is quite the a relief. other thing. The the other ones in Laughlin, you had to go everywhere you went. You went through the casino. Oh, it was brutal. It was brutal. I just felt like it was draining my soul to to walk through those clanging bells and the flashing lights. Me too, and the smell. And the cigarette they smoke, yeah. yeah. of fear, those places. Yeah. Um, great. I will. Um, I look forward to just saying hello at the conference and, and say hello to Anne. I will. Th thanks so much. Bye, Bye now. This is Mike chiming in at the end. Uh, hey, could you tell I was nervous? I acted a little nervous. I, uh, during the editing process, I, uh, I was kind of surprised. I could, I could hear it in my own voice. Uh, there was one point where I asked Whitley a question, and, and I was sort of uh, mumbling and fumbling a little bit. And uh, there's a kind of awkward pause, and Whitley said in his deep, beautiful, booming voice, um, I don't understand the question. <laughs> okay, ignoring my, uh, my nervousness, uh, I felt the content of what Whitley said was just great. Uh, I'm repeating myself what I said at the very beginning. He is an excellent writer, and I think he's even a better speaker. Uh, he's got a, a really commanding presence, and I, I, I just like I I listen closely when he talks. Uh, there's no way to know whether he's right or wrong. All that said, I do pay very close attention when he has something to share. Uh, now, now, right uh, right near the end there, I did mention that I had listened to an audio interview that he did on a radio station in New York in 1987. The host is named Don Swaim. I'm going to tack on a little bit of that interview here. It's, it's really interesting to listen to his voice and his presence now a quarter of a century later. Yeah. So how have you been? Well, I've been perfectly fine now since I got... This business together in my mind, uh, I have been. 
uh, the communion thing. And uh, uh, it's quite real. I mean, whatever it's about, Don, quite real. I just don't know for certain if it's what it seems to be. And I keep saying this on the air because people are jumping to the conclusion that a thing like this must be UFOs. But it may not be that. It may be something in a sense more wonderful. I, I say in the book that I keep returning to the human side of it because even if it does involve visitors from another planet, the part of it that's important to us is what happens to us and how we feel about it and how we react to it. And that's what the book is about. It's about reacting to the unknown, really. About living with the unknown. Can you be more specific? What is this? I started reading the book, and I said, what is Whitley saying here? Uh, what is, are these events real? Now, somewhere in your persona, having written the uh, Wolfen and, mm -hmm. and uh, the Hunger, there had to be a sort of... A, a, a bizarre uh, relationship to yes. that which is not real. But here it seems to manifest itself in some real ways. And uh, I yes. saw, as I began reading, I said, I, I can accept the horror novels, which in some respects you've put behind you, but is Whitley putting me on? Is it an elaborate... Is this a novel, basically, is your question? Is this a new kind of novel, a novel that pretends to be nonfiction so completely that the author is even willing to go on a tour and say this is true when it actually isn't. No. It's I am recording here perceptions that I had. As I look back on these things that I record having happened, the ones that I remembered, which were extensive without hypnosis, before there was any hypnosis, are just as real as any other memories in my life. They're indistinguishable from real memories. And the physical side effects that happened were real. There was... They said they were going to do an operation on my brain. They inserted a needle into my head, and there was a needle mark in my head. It was there. My wife saw it. I, I did react to this as if I had been traumatized. I went to the doctor, thinking at the time that I was crazy expecting to be, I didn't know what was happening. I thought maybe I was, uh, I had a brain tumor. I was horrified. And this just interrupted my life. It was like an explosion going off in the middle of my life. It was that but startling. Psychologically, you are open to psychic phenomena, aren't you? You are not, not very, no. I wasn't very open to it. I, you, you're not. I mean, you, you use that sort of thing in a couple of horror novels, and you soon find out from doing research that the whole subject has got a very low level of talent connected with it. The people who write books about it aren't the best people. The people who do so-called experiments are not the best scientists. It's just right up and down the pike. You get the sense that the field is not grade A science by any means, not even grade B science, and a lot of fraud connected with and it. And not at science at all. And not science at all. And I, no, I was, I wouldn't say I was, I bought, bought into the paranormal. I was pretty skeptical about it, and UFOs were a matter of absolute indifference to me. I could, I, I'm more interested in the number of pages in the New York telephone directory than I am in UFOs. I, I was before this happened to me, frankly. There, that was a three-minute clip from, uh, an audio interview for a radio station in New York from 1987. Yeah, that's th that 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 interview is 
is recommended to anyone who's made it this far into this. I'm gonna I'll add a link to that interview on the show notes, and then I would encourage anyone to listen to that inter- interview in its entirety. It's about a half hour long. It's uh, very impressive. It mostly just, you know, the tone it hasn't really changed that much in the way he presents this quandary. Uh, his thoughtful tone. Now, at this point, I, I feel like I could go on and on and on. I could reference a lot of things. I could uh, encourage you to join his website. I would. I, I want to be careful not to sound um, too much like a gushing fanboy. But um, in in the modern history of the UFO lore, especially the abduction phenomena, there is not a more powerful or persistent voice than than that of Whitley Strieber. Uh, uh, this is me talking, this is my opinion, uh, not everyone shares that opinion. Uh, look, I'm just going to end this with a, with an excerpt from the audiobook of the original Communion, and it's read by uh, an actor who I've always loved, Roddy McDowell. And Whitley has mentioned that, um, that Roddy McDowell was very interested and supportive of his work in the, the original book Communion. Now this excerpt from the um, audio reading of, of the original Communion is just a few minutes long. And, uh, and I'm including it here mostly just because I think Roddy McDowell had such a beautiful and sensitive voice. And another reason I'm adding this here is, is just because Roddy McDowell was a wonderful actor. And what he's doing is he's playing a role as he's reading this, this excerpt from the book. Uh, he's playing the role of Whitley Strieber. And Whitley Strieber's thoughtful, sensitive words are now portrayed by someone with a beautiful, thoughtful, and sensitive voice. And the result is, to me, something that's enthralling. I, I have listened to this repeatedly, this audiobook of the original uh, text of Communion, and uh, I just get so much out of it. Please enjoy. My point is that there may be far more to this than science or government or even religion can separately address. It would seem that our civilization is not paying attention to what may be the central archetypal and mythological experience of our age. If so, then this is the first time that man has simply refused to respond to the ghosts and the gods. Is that why they have become so physical, so real, dragging people out of bed like rapists in the night? Because they must have our notice in order to somehow be confirmed in their own truth. This may be primarily a matter of visions and chimeras, battering at the door of physical reality. They are not simply flickering effects of the mind. Something is out there and wants in. Whomever and whatever the visitors are, their activities go far beyond a mere study of mankind. They are involved with us on very deep levels, playing in the band of dream, weaving imagination and reality together until they begin to seem what they probably are, different aspects of a single continuum. To really begin to perceive the visitors adequately, it is going to be necessary to invent a new discipline of vision, one that combines the mystic's freedom of imagination with the substantial intellectual rigor of the scientist.
Maybe there really is another species living upon this earth, the fairies, the gnomes, the sylphs, vampires, goblins, who attach to reality along a different line than we do, but who know and love us, as we do the wild things of the woods, who, perhaps, are trying to save us from ourselves, or whose lives are inextricably linked to our own. If we die, must the gods, the fairies, the elves then fall into some blue glen of unknowing? Will their secret world go cold without us, or will there only be less excitement? I can discern a visible agenda of contact in what is happening. Over the past forty or so years, their involvement with us has not only been deepening, it has been spreading rapidly through the society. At least, this is how things appear. The truth may be that it is not their involvement that is increasing, but our perception that is becoming sharper. The evolution of this increase in perception may have a very definite design. We initially noticed objects from afar, then closer. Then we remembered seeing the visitors, and now we are beginning to remember being with them. Will the visitors emerge into our world on a flood of memory?